This episode of The Witch Wave is brought to you by Cat Coven. Cat Coven is a lifestyle shop for witches, weirdos, and warriors. All designs are the creation of Kirsty Farrett, a queer artist from central Pennsylvania. Find her illustrations on home goods such as fine art prints, pillowcases, and ceramic mugs to accessories like embroidered patches and tote bags. You'll love her items if you are also a fan of witchcraft, feminism, art history, and of course, cats. Witchwave listeners can receive 15% off at catcoven.com with code WITCHWAVE15. And in July, Cat Coven will be debuting a new clothing line called the Everyday Fantasy Collection. Thoughtfully designed on the East Coast and made in L.A., the new line is inspired by the medieval and renaissance periods, as well as fantasy worlds. Imagine renaissance fair garb, but make it slightly more casual and comfortable for everyday wear. The new line is gender and size inclusive, going from XS to 5XL. So make sure to follow at cat underscore coven on Instagram to get updates on when the new collection launches on Kickstarter. This episode of The Witch Wave is brought to you by Blessed Be Magic. Blessed Be Magic is a jewelry brand for the modern witch, creating subtle and tasteful talisman jewelry to remind you of your magic. You're a modern witch living in the real world. And maybe it's not that your lifestyle is a secret, it's just that you're not exactly flying around on a broomstick wearing a pointy hat. And you are not alone. It can be hard to find subtle, witchy jewelry that you feel comfortable wearing every day. But that's why Blessed Be Magic was born. With over 700 five-star reviews, these tasteful talismans are designed to be worn with your existing jewelry collection or on their own. The beauty is, Blessed Be Magic jewelry won't draw unnecessary attention to your sacred beliefs. Plus, you'll get to wear a constant reminder of your magic every day. Visit them at www.blessedbemagic.com, and magic is spelled with a CK at the end, and use code WITCHWAVE for 15% off your first order. Check out Blessed Be Magic's modern take on classic magical symbols such as the Triple Goddess and Pentacle in their minimalist jewelry that you can wear every day, anywhere. Again, visit them at www.blessedbemagic.com, that's magic with a CK, and use code WITCHWAVE for 15% off your first order. The world is filled with bewitching people, and you might be one too. Welcome to the podcast where art is magic, magic is real, and reality is stranger than dreams. I'm Pam Grossman, and this is The Witch Wave.
Hello and welcome to the Witch Wave. Something that comes up a lot on this podcast is the notion of lineage and how we all come from very specific lines of ancestry. And I've come to learn that as I've been diving deeper into my own ancestor rituals and research, my magic has deepened and my sense of self has felt all the more supported and strengthened. Today's guest, Chawan Ku, put it perfectly when she spoke with Paper Magazine about the first time she visited South Korea and encountered its magic. She told them, quote, It's like my desiccated roots were suddenly plump with the blood of my ancestors. Unquote. But biology is only one type of lineage. There is also what I've come to think of as spiritual lineage. This is made up of people you are not genetically related to in a direct way, but still feel a deep homecoming when your paths cross with them or with their stories. These can be people you know or knew personally who might fall under the umbrella of chosen family, whether they be friends, lovers, collaborators, mentors. But your spiritual lineage can also be made up of people that you never met or who may have died before you were even born. Writers, musicians, artists, activists, scientists, philosophers, witches, anyone whose ideas have left a deep imprint on your soul and whose legacy you honor through remembrance and perhaps even through the work you are doing and making here and now. Remedios Varo, for example, is someone you've heard me talk about a lot, and she is for me someone whose art I love so deeply and whose life is intertwined with mine and the things I make. I feel this sense of recognition when I'm engaging in her work, and she allows me to be more fully myself. Remedios is one of dozens of spiritual ancestors of mine, and when I speak about her, I feel as if in my small way I'm helping to share her gifts with the world, even though she died 18 years before I ever showed up on this planet. I was thinking about artists and spiritual lineage again when I recently saw the Genesis Briar Piarage Art Exhibition, which is up now at Pioneer Works in Brooklyn through July 10th. Now, I've been familiar with Briar Piarage's occult-infused, gender-transcendent, taboo-busting work for a while now, and even had the honor of showing one of their pieces in the Language of the Birds show I curated in 2016. But this time around, I was particularly touched by how much homage Jen paid to the thinkers and makers who influenced them. And this was part of Jen's practice. The show's curator, Benjamin Teicher, told me how important it was to Jen that people be given credit for their ideas and influence. And Benjamin emphasized to me how even though Jen became an iconoclast and legend in their own right, they never stopped being a fan and made sure 
that people knew the names of the artists and thinkers who impacted them, their work, and their life. In an academic context, the simple way of saying this is to cite your sources. It's the correct and appropriate thing to do because none of us is a pure originator. We are all the sum of our influences, even as we remake them and cut them up and restitch them together again in new ways. But with a more spiritual framing, I also think this is a way of honoring our spiritual ancestors, speaking their names, sharing their work, amplifying their magic. Jen did this with the names of Brian Geisen, William Burroughs, Patti Smith, and so many others. And that citing of the sources, that honoring the spiritual ancestors, is one of the many reasons why my guest Cha Won Koo's book, Spellbound, touched me so. Because in addition to honoring her bloodline, she also cites the work of so many people who have helped her develop her own unique blend of witchcraft. Today, there's so much debate about what is cultural appropriation versus appreciation and what's closed practice and open practices and so on. We've talked a lot about that on this show and we will continue to do so. But I think a good rule of thumb in your life, not just when it comes to magic making, but when it comes to anything really, is to make sure you are giving credit to the people who have influenced your ideas and your practices. Now that's not going to absolve you of every misstep or give you permission to do whatever you want in certain cases, but it's a very, very good habit to be in, and it is certainly a way to honor those who have trailblazed a new path that you are now walking upon. I am so grateful to Chawan for honoring her lineage of biology and spirit in her book, and I was so excited to talk to her all about it and more. But before we get to that, First, let's check and see what's come through on The Witch Wire. Who is it? Witches! Annalise writes, I've often heard you and your guests speak of ancestor work, and it intrigues me. I feel like I want to connect with my ancestors, but I come from a background of significant abuse and struggle with making those connections. I have often wondered if my father was abused as well, thus influencing his actions as an abuser, and it makes me afraid that those patterns may extend for many generations back in my family. I currently do not have a relationship with most of my biological family due to the trauma of childhood abuse, so it is impossible to explore these things further with living relatives. I am also afraid that if there are abusive ancestors, that unknowingly involving them in my life will create negative energy, energy that I fought hard to escape from. Despite all of this, 
I still feel the urge to know more about my ancestors and want to feel a connection with any positive ancestors in my family history. My question is, do you have any suggestions for those of us who desire to know our ancestors but have problematic family histories? Hi, Annalise. Oof, this is a complicated question. It has come up before on the show, but I really think it's worth revisiting. First of all, I just have to say I'm so sorry to hear about the trauma and the abuse that you've experienced. And I hope that you have been able to get the support and healing that you need and that you'll continue to do so. And I am just sending you so much love. Now regarding ancestor work, there are lots of people who specialize in just this. So you may want to seek out someone who does this work and can help you through this in a deeper way than I possibly can in this medium and in this moment. But Googling ancestral healing may point you in some good directions toward people or books that you can connect with and go deeper with. But I will say this, there are many approaches you can take and it truly depends on what you feel up to doing. I know that there are folks who do rituals to try and help their dysfunctional or traumatized or abusive even ancestors heal. Because remember, hurt people hurt people. Abusers should never be excused, but they are often acting out of pain, fear, and as you said, sometimes are perpetuating a cycle of abuse that they experienced. Again, that doesn't excuse the pain they inflict on others, and you have every right to feel any which way about that. It's not all love and light all the time, okay? But if you do have the capacity for it, and you may never, and that is fine, but if you do, and you feel safe enough and strong enough to do so, you may want to do some work around sending messages of healing, relief, release, and if you're ready, even forgiveness to them. That doesn't mean inviting that energy into your life. It means a kind of letting go. Again, if you have the capacity to do that work. I would also like to so gently and tenderly and hopefully sensitively remind you that nobody is all one thing. For example... It is possible for an ancestor to be horrifically violent and to have had a gift with words or to have passed along their love of the plant kingdom, let's say, or to have been great at telling a joke. It doesn't mean they were a great person, but those gifts perhaps are also things that they passed on to you. Now, I know these are really uncomfortable, complicated truths, but I'm here to say that you are allowed to still be grateful for those gifts while still absolutely rejecting the rest and protecting yourself from harm and refusing to otherwise engage with those ancestors. 
Now, maybe you're not at that point in your journey. Maybe you'll never be there and you just want to stay the fuck away from those specific spirits entirely. And that is absolutely okay too. In either case, you can still connect to benevolent, well-meaning ancestors even if you don't know their names. And you can literally just speak to them from the heart. For example, you can light a candle to them and say to them, Dear ancestors whose names I do not know, but who wish only the highest good for me and my loved ones, I welcome you, I honor you, and I thank you for my life, and I ask you for any guidance and protection you may offer me. It really can be that simple. And if you do just that simple ritual whenever you feel called to, I truly believe that you will get some kind of answer or experience some kind of shift or receive some kind of signs following the trail of cosmic breadcrumbs, as I always say. So just give it a try. And you can also do things like connect to the broader history of your people, even though you may not know the specific history of your family line. You can connect to your people's land, their lore, their food, their music, and most importantly, you can do this at your own pace and on your own terms. The biggest piece of advice I can give you around ancestor work is to trust the process, to be patient, and to know that this is ongoing work that is done layer by layer, revelation by revelation. You won't suddenly one day receive all the answers you're looking for. It will happen gradually over time. But I promise you, you will receive some kind of knowledge or messages that you need because I believe your ancestors want to be found. They want to be known by you. And so once you start looking for them, they will help. It may happen in mysterious ways, in dreams, in snippets of song, in odd cosmic encounters. But inviting them to be part of your life will change your life. I promise you this, and I truly look forward to hearing how things unfold. Now, on to my guest. Chawan Ku is a writer of the intersection of pop culture, the occult, and futurism. Her TikTok, at Chawanku, is one of the most popular occult accounts on the platform, and she also interviews some of the most distinguished occultists and witches in the English-speaking world on her YouTube, Witches and Wine. Her new book, Spellbound, A New Witch's Guide to Crafting the Future, came out this month, May 2022, and it details her journey from an atheist witch into one of the most visible East Asian practitioners of both Eastern and Western occult traditions. 
In September, she will be giving an online lecture for the Last Tuesday Society about what witches and occultists can learn from K-pop bands, so be sure to check that out as well. We, of course, talked about K-pop bands and so much more in our conversation when Chawan joined me from her home on Long Island via Zoom. Chawan Koo, welcome to The Witch Wave. Thank you so much for having me, Pam. I'm so thrilled to have you here. First of all, I got to hold your beautiful new book, Spellbound, in my hands yesterday, and I was really blown away by how gorgeous it is, and I want to congratulate you on it and tell you how excited I am for this book to be in the world. Thank you so much. It was a group effort. It was a total labor of love between my editor, the illustrator, Kring, myself, and I wanted to create a book that was a talisman, not just a book of information, but an actual talisman that you can hold. And I'm just so privileged that it's finally out in the world. It's really splendid. I mean, truly, truly stunning. And I don't say that lightly. I'm very obnoxious when it comes to my aesthetic tastes. And this is truly one of the most beautiful books I've ever seen. And certainly spell books and books in this space. So I wanted to start with the visuals of it. For somebody who is hearing about it for the first time via this podcast, can you describe visually what your intention was behind the book? Mm, That is a great question. So I think it was all inspired by an article I read about the caves in France. Basically, it was like cave Netflix pictures of bison and animals. If you just look at it still, it looks like, hey, why does this animal have seven legs, eight legs? But when you move, the light in a certain way, it looks like the bison are running. It looks like the animals are animated. So I thought that was magic back then to go down deep into the caves, the Chauvet caves. And for a hunting party before they need to go out and hunt their antelope and make sure no one starves, it's sort of like, all right, we're putting in our A game. We're putting on the best sort of magic that we can do so that we are in the mindset to go and make sure we survive. And I was like, that was magic then. It was visual. It was more than just a bunch of text or scratches. It was something beyond that. Mm -hmm. It was trying to take what I think is a macro view of the world and turn it micro. Mm. And I was like, ah, okay, how can I take a macro view of magic? Something so abstract and make it and manifest it into something that is more micro, something you can hold. And this book came to be like at this great time in my life. I was just chilling. And I received an email from someone who was just like, hey, you want to write a book for us? And, you know, we all get scammy emails. And Mm -hmm. I'm just like, I don't know about this. But then I checked out Smith Street Books. And I was like, wait a second. They do picture books on Keanu Reeves. I am in. (laughs) I mean, what more do you need? Exactly. It was a sign. So I was just (laughs) like, yes, you did a book on Alexander McQueen, Keanu Reeves, Grace Jones, and cookbooks. They don't do any occult books. It was purely illustrated, beautifully photographed, just picture books. And I was like, this, this is a sign the universe is giving me. Yes. And just for us to both try to attempt to translate this visual work of art into this auditory space. One of the things I love about the book is, as you said, it's richly illustrated. Who was the illustrator again? Her name's Kring. She's a Filipina. Oh, my goodness beautiful, beautiful drawings. 
But then the graphic design of it is also very bewitching. You sometimes have the words and the typography. Sometimes it's in spirals. Sometimes the words are spread apart, almost like they're dissolving into air. You have to turn the book around at times to read it. One of my favorite spreads, you're writing about the moon and the words are literally in the shape of a crescent moon. It's just so beautiful. So I would love to hear about how much input you had into some of the design of the book too. Oh, well, it's a miracle that my editor and the illustrator are still talking to me because (laughs) I think that this book was so important for me to create as a talisman that I just put my hands into all of it. I was kind of a control freak when it came to the illustrations, when it came to the layout. I was really inspired by House of Leaves, that book. Oh, yes. I remember reading that book and just the way that it's laid out, it just brings that extra level of, wow, this person's not well, this person in the book, the evocativeness. And I thought everything about magic is about layering on meaning. We do sympathetic magic, right? We do love magic usually on Fridays because it's the day of Venus Mm -hmm. and we use certain colors and we use roses. And we're all building sort of a case, almost like a lawyer, that this is what I want for my reality. So for me, I was like, if I'm such a control freak, when it comes to doing my magic and my rituals, I am going to be a control freak, obviously, when it comes to creating this (laughs) talisman of a book. So shout out to my editor, Avery, for putting up with me for like six months. Absolutely. Well, it's truly breathtaking. So shifting into the words of the book, the beautiful content that you brought to it, The subtitle of this book is A New Witch's Guide to Crafting the Future. And you break this book out into five different parts. And those five parts follow, and please correct me if I'm mispronouncing it. I know that you are from South Korea or your family is, but this is the Chinese concept of wuxing. Is that correct? That's correct. And of course, every East Asian country pronounces wuxing their own way. It's basically the, I would say, not the exact, but pretty much equivalent of the four elements that's in Western magic. Mm -hmm. If you look at a tarot card, you'll see, like in the magician's card, the the elements, earth, water, fire, and... Air. Air. (laughs) I was like blanking (laughs) out. Yeah. And in Chinese Wuxing, it's not so much elements because in Chinese alchemy, there are no like static things. Everything is moving into the other element. Mm-hmm. So these are more like phases. And the phases like wood, it turns into fire, then it turns to earth, then it turns to metal, then it turns to water, and then it goes again and again in this virtuous or sometimes viceful cycle. So it was really important to me that I incorporate that because that is the fundamental aspect of almost all of East Asian philosophy, not even just magic, this idea of these elements in nature that you can see with your own eyes, you can touch with your own hands, changing, always changing. If you talk about the hexagrams in the Yi Ching, everything's always changing. Mm -hmm. And then subdivided within the five phases of the Wuxing are the three main phases of Western alchemy, which is Negrito, Albedo, and Rubido. And similarly, how the five phases of Wuxing, they flow into each other and they're very seasonal. When we come to Western alchemy, it also is this wonderful cycle where in Negrito, things are burning, fermenting, you're breaking it down. Mm -hmm. And then you break it down to the point where it turns like 
spontaneously almost into like white ash and it's albedo. Yes. And then one of my favorite parts is rubido. When we think about the word ruby, it's red. It's putting in the blood back, reanimating the Frankenstein in a way, but the uber Frankenstein of what it is that you've created. So you do it again and again, just purifying and taking the essence, the quintessence of something and just making it even more and more the quintessence, essence, ultimate core of what it is that you're trying to extract. So I thought that is a way to hybridize Eastern, um, East Asian, ethnically and culturally, but also by Western. I was raised in America and Western occultism, which I'm very much into how to hybridize those and be a bridge between those two. Let's go to the first principles, as they say in engineering, the, the fundamentals. Yes, yes. Now, I'm so interested in the fact that you use these, we'll just call them traditional, whether it's Western traditions or Eastern traditions, kind of templates for organizing the magical principles of your book. But you also have that word new in the title. And so much of this book is about not keeping magic in tradition. To, yes, not culturally appropriate and to honor one's ancestry and lineage and so on, but also to keep magic a forward fluid system that incorporates technology and incorporates all of these other, we'll call them present into future evolutions. And I think that's a really important thing I want people to know about this book, too, because it's not just about looking to the past. It's very much about looking forward as well. Absolutely. I couldn't have said it better. So I was living in Korea for several years, and I came back in 2018. South Korea is the number 11 economy in the world, but you go there and into a lot of places in East Asia. And what you'll see is this juxtaposition of old and new. So I talk about in the book where if you go to Hogunsa, which is one of the oldest Buddhist temples in Seoul, in Korea, right across the street are these high-rise skyscrapers. We have Coex, which is one of those big convention centers that has the biggest underground mall in the world. At nighttime, it's stunning. And you have this really huge stone Buddha as well. So you're mixing the old and the new, and they exist so peacefully and perfectly and beautifully next to each other. Mm -hmm. I lived in that neighborhood in Korea. So during the day, you would hear sometimes the monks, they would be chanting, they would be ringing the bells. And then you'd also see the traffic of Seoul. You'd also see people doing luxury shopping while they're in Samsung, the Hyundai department store. That is Korea. That is Seoul. It's perfectly comfortable there. But I've noticed that a lot of places in the West, there is this thing where people don't like to mix the old and the new. Mm -hmm. People like to be very traditional or people like to be super, super chaos magic-y. Yeah, like mm, burn it all down. Exactly. And for me, I was always like, well, it feels much more comfortable for me, more natural for me to be a mix of both. And I think a lot of it is because I was living, I was literally breathing in, seeing, being right in the middle of when Korea was really starting to boom, K-pop was really starting to boom, Gangnam style, everything was really starting to boom in mainstream culture all around the world. So I think that's the reason why for me, when I look at the word modern and when I look at the word technology, and I talk about this in the book. To me, technology is not just about the internet and your iPhone and your iPad. Technology is anything that is beyond just this vehicle of your body that we've extended through the ingenuity of the human mind. Clothes are technology, mm -hmm. so we wouldn't freeze to death. Shoes, wheels, pen, ink, paper, these are all technology, and they're all coming from 
man. And I would even say that maybe the mages of the PGM, the Greek magical pirate time, they would probably be doing all the cool technological stuff that people who are in Web3 or even like TikTokers, like Gen Z TikTokers are doing. That's what they would have been doing back then. So I'm just like, are we romanticizing the past and thus kind of like, ooh, the future and technology don't want it? Or are we going to be like, you know what, in the context of what it was back then versus now, yeah, technology is 100%. If the mages back then were alive today, they'd be loving it. They'd be like, yes, this is magic too. Absolutely. On that note, we're going to take a quick break and we'll be right back. The Path 365, Daily Direction for Ladies and Mothers, Witches and Others, is a book that allows you to open your mind, body, and spirit to a path that is uniquely yours. As a gateway spirituality guide, it weaves coping mechanisms identified in neuroscience and mental health that address mind, body, and spirit, and incorporates them into an easy-to-read daily guide. Author Susie Newell received her doctorate from the University of Cincinnati with a focus on coping mechanisms. This book gently encourages people to open their mind to a spiritual path that feels right for them. Like a daily oracle read for the soul, The Path 365 takes you through a journey of positive self-discovery and encourages you to incorporate your practice into every aspect of your being. Whether you have a solid spiritual practice already or are exploring your options, The Path 365 is a unique guide to creating a path of your own. Visit them at thepath365.com for ordering options, and be sure to use code WITCHWAVE for free shipping. And you can give The Path 365 a follow on your favorite social media platform. We are all in this thing together. Create a path that works for you. Longtime listeners know that Witchwave is proudly supported by BetterHelp Online Therapy. And I say proudly because I am someone who has been in therapy myself since I was a teenager, and I truly cannot imagine my life being as fulfilling and stable and supported without having had someone professional to talk to about all of the ups and downs that I've encountered along the way. I'm someone who has to manage my anxiety sometimes, but whether or not that's the issue you have, life can be overwhelming for all of us, and many people are burnt out without even knowing it, especially after the last few years we've all lived through. You might be feeling lack of motivation or at times helpless or stuck. You might be experiencing feelings of fatigue or detachment or more. And guess what? So do I sometimes. When I think about the large-scale issues on a global level, on top of the personal challenges I've sometimes got going on, it's a lot that we're all carrying with us. And sometimes it makes me feel drained and depleted, and I just need a place to put those feelings so I can move on with my day. Luckily, none of us has to do that work alone. And that's why we can lean on certainly our spiritual practice, but also a mental health practice that includes some form of counseling. 
Talking to someone who has been trained to help me sort through all of these thoughts and emotions has been a game changer for me over the years. That's why I'm so happy that BetterHelp exists, because it is customized online therapy that offers video, phone, and even live chat sessions with your therapist, so you don't have to see anyone on camera if you don't want to. Though I'm telling you, they've seen it all, so if you need to show up unshowered in your pajamas, that's fine too. What's also great is that BetterHelp is much more affordable than in-person therapy, and you can be matched with a therapist in under 48 hours. Best of all, Witchwave listeners get 10% off their first month of counseling by going to betterhelp.com slash witchwave. That's B-E-T-T-E-R-H-E-L-P dot com slash witchwave. So if you're feeling burnt out or stressed out for any reason, and I can certainly think of a few myself, I'm here to remind you to please prioritize yourself and get that extra bit of fortification and support that you need and truly deserve. So one more time, go to betterhelp.com witchwave and get 10% off your first month of counseling. Take good care. Welcome back to The Witch Wave. Today, I'm speaking with Chawan Koo. I'm so, so buzzing with excitement about this idea of hybridizing the old and the new. I also think that's true of just our notion of what a witch is. And you give one of my favorite definitions of what a witch is that I've encountered in a long time. So here is what you write in the book. The witch is, quote, an active, even playful participant in shaping her future and aligning it to her true will. So first of all, I just love the notion of playfulness. That's something we talk about a lot on this podcast. I'm constantly talking about what I call reverent irreverence and this notion of having fun with our magic. But I also love this idea of how one is a co-creator, a participant. It seems to me like the witch is some kind of a sacred collaborator, and especially according to your definition of this, a collaborator with something, a capital S something. And I'd love to hear you elaborate on what the word witch means for you. Mm. So I totally forgot I wrote that. So <laughs> thank you for reminding me. And yes, absolutely. For me, there is a continuum between, let's say, religion versus magic. And one of the big things that kind of separates for me the difference between religion and magic is that there's something about magic that's a little bit more like play. Like religion to me is surrender. Religion is you're on your knees, arms wide open. It's that Creed song, right? <laughs> Take me oh, sky no. daddy or whatever it is. <laughs> but for magic, there's this feeling of like, hey, what happens if I add a little bit of this in, kind of stick my fingers into the Maya, the illusion of reality, and hack the code behind the reality? Let's see what happens if we do this. Ooh, what about that? So there is a sort of like wink, wink smile about it that I think is a little bit different from that on your knee sort of like, yes, God. Thing that I associate religion. I'm an atheist witch. So I've been a lifelong atheist. So for me, 
that is the vibe that I get between those two. For some people, they can mix it. And that's amazing that they can. But for me, I definitely see a sort of Marla from Fight Club <laughs> vibe going on when it comes mm-hmm. to being a witch or an occultist. Mm, I love that so much. I want to break down that phrase, true will. And you say right at the top of the book, Crowley was not a woke person. That is a quote from you. And yet that phrase, true will, true will, is throughout your writing. So I'd love to hear a little bit more about your relationship to Crowley and that body of occultism and more broadly to the notion of what true will is. Because that word will is always something that I've had my own discomfort with. And I think it's because of some of my associations with Crowley. And and I have a lot of respect for Crowley and a lot of respect for people who have followed some of his writings, even though he was deeply problematic. And yet that word will is always something that I have to make sure I know what the intent is behind the word of the person who's using it, if that makes sense. That does make a lot of sense. And thank you for bringing that up, that there's a lot of things in magic, in the occult especially, when we look at it through the lens of today, is deeply problematic. And I write in the book how there is no safe space in magic. There just isn't because there is no safe space in life. And you have to learn how to throw out the dirty bathwater while saving the baby. So for me, I decided, okay, what is the best way for me to take this problematic person, problematic philosophy, and then flippity flop it and make it more constructive. And for me, it was like, okay, the baby to be saved is this concept of true will. What is true will? True will is going beyond society. So it's deconditioning from what society tells you is success, is hot summer bod or, you know, girl (laughs) boss. I mean, if that's for you, if that's your true will, go for it. And you're aligned with society. Hey, lucky you. Mm -hmm. But you know what? I think a lot of us, we know our true will. We can feel it because we burn out when we do things that are not our true will. Mm. We do magic that people say we should do and we're like, I'm not feeling it. But when we do things that are our true will, I call it golden retriever energy. It's like the tail starts to wag furiously and work doesn't feel like work. It feels like play. Mm -hmm. That's again where that wink, wink sort of playfulness in magic comes from. True will is challenging on the outside and yet it feels like play because it's hard, but you're like, I love it. True will is you being you in the most unique, differentiated way possible. And every single person is so unique and differentiated. There is no competition. There is no reason to feel like, man, I feel bad when I compare my magic to that person's magic. It's completely different. Mm -hmm. And if you're not completely differentiated, if you're not completely unique because it is your true will, it's not your true will. (laughs) then it is something else. It is what Instagram tells you. It's what your mom told you. It's what your pastor told you, your rabbi told you. So for me, true will is a shortcut to saying you being you completely, utterly with impunity. Ooh, so good. But you also differentiate that between people who are like, I'm just going to do whatever the hell I want and trust my intuition and make magic as it occurs to me or borrow willy-nilly from different spaces and places and peoples and actual study and research. And one of the things I also deeply respect about you and your book is you have done the homework, you cite your sources, you also have a very eclectic body of thinkers whose words and work you're drawing upon. I just love that. So if you could help people understand the difference between following one's true will, but also (laughs) 
doing the homework and learning from what's come before. I think that could be helpful for folks too. I love this question because it's really forcing me to go beyond the trite answers I can give. And what I'm feeling right now is this sense of like, okay, in the book I talk about, what's the difference between vanilla ice and M&M? I love this so much. Please break this down. You can tell that M&M was going with his true will. Vanilla ice was just going for the clout, was just going for the ego gratification. When you go for true will, things like appropriation, it just automatically turns into appreciation. When you go for true will, it's authentic. I forget exactly who the Supreme Court justice was, but it was about pornography. And the Supreme Court justice said, I can't really define with words what pornography is, but I know it when I see see it. it. And it's kind of like that. When people become a little bit too stuck in their mind about, oh my God, did I study enough? Am I appropriate? Am I doing this? That's a very different vibe. It comes from a place of like, are you really following this deep sense of authenticity? Because I find that people who are following this deep sense of authenticity, and it's really hard because society is always like fucking with you. But when you can find that clarity, then the way that you step into these very tricky places of appropriation, of are you a good ally, of all these other things, and not just in magic, but just in life in general, it's far more graceful and far more elegant. It's almost like the path that was foggy before, the steps they show up for you because you're going with what feels right for you, like deep inside your humanness. And when you're truly being a human and you're following your true will, it's almost as if the universe dances with you and the universe is dancing with all of us. And there is a very naturalness. I almost say it's almost like a butterfly, you know, it's just flitting and it's beautiful and it doesn't have an agenda. We can tell when there's an agenda, people of color, people in marginalized communities, people who are trying to study and do the work. When you're actually studying because it's your true will and you love it, again, it doesn't feel like work. And it's just so natural to be like, of course, I'm going to cite these people. I don't need to tell the world like, oh, look at me. I just thought of all these things by myself. I'm the genius. No, it's not like that. I'm excited to share my human experience with these great humans that came before me who are alongside with me, my peers, colleagues, inspirations, whoever else, my cultural ancestors, my inspirational ancestors, my intellectual ancestors, and my blood ancestors. Mm -hmm. Then it all becomes so natural. So I would really encourage people to, instead of thinking so much about what society wants and demands from you, to go deep inside one's humanity And to mix that with your own sense of discernment. And when you do that, and it takes a long time to do that and to get comfortable with it, but once you do, your life changes. And that's what magic has done for me. It's helped me gain that clarity. Mm -hmm. So I want to talk about the balance of opposites, which is so clear in alchemy and which is such a beautiful theme throughout your book. I'm going to quote you again. You write, a witch, French kisses both worlds, that of a sinner and saint. We live in the liminal space, the moist, fertile conjunction of dark and light. And in that embrace, wondering whether you are good or bad ceases to be interesting. I think that's really beautiful. And you're writing about this in the context of embracing shadow, embracing anger. You talk about demons in this book. Things that I know some people can have some discomfort with. And you start the book actually by talking about a concept which was new to me. I hope I'm pronouncing this correctly. Is the word pronounced Han? Han. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Han. 
if you could root us in this conversation maybe by explaining what Han is and talking about why as a witch it's important to integrate Han in one's magic as much as the light, happy, joy, love vibes too. So Han is a Korean word, but there's the concept of Han, I think, in every single culture. And Han, it's sort of like a hate fuck sort of feeling. (laughs) So Thor and Loki have Han, but you and your twin flame also have Han. It's a, a sticky feeling of this cycle, this intergenerational sort of feel that builds and builds. It's like a resentment that grows, but an attachment that also grows. It's this really intense feeling. And for me, magic, the gas, the thing that takes your magic and just boom, takes it to the stratosphere is emotion. A lot of people, they do magic from a very mental place, from a very abstract place. And I think in Western secular culture, there's this thing about, oh, we just need to talk it out. We need to be logical. We need to have almost like Dr. Spock sort of mind. But to me, magic, the power of it is rooted in this deep, thonic sort of like when we think about what goes on underneath the earth's surface. It's all the magma just bubbling. It's that vitality there. And Han is saying that in your DNA, literally in your blood, because if you're listening to this, I think you're most probably a human being with a body. Mm -hmm. If there's any spirits listening to this, what's up? Hey, spirits. Hey, spirits. Hey, hey. So you're literally in a body. You're literally in an altar to your ancestors. They survived and suffered so that they could pass on their DNA to you. And now you're alive. Amazing. In your DNA are their memories, their Han, all the Han of your ancestors, not just your blood ancestors, but also your cultural, inspirational, intellectual ancestors. And that Han is just like this juice. It's this gas. And so much of that is removing shame. I love Dr. Brene Brown, Mm -hmm, who did that amazing TED Talk. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Her stuff about shame has been really transformational for me because it made me realize that society, again, this idea of deconditioning and magic helping you decondition, society has taught us, especially those who are female-bodied or more feminine in nature, that emotions are shameful. You shouldn't be like that because you should be this completely logical person. You should be more masculine in that way versus so much of what goes on in the world today is run by emotions. The stock market is the most emotional thing in the world. Oh my goodness. War is emotional. War is, politics is emotional. (laughs) Male presidents. They're the most emotional of all. Exactly. Hello. So emotional. And I'm like, that's where the power comes from. But you want to repress it, suppress it? No, 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 no. And especially what your ancestors gifted to you, this Han. This is something that we're giving to you because this was sort of like the energy that kind of kept us going too. Because Mm -hmm. that hate fuck energy is also quite a good energy to help you survive. And sure, it can be destructive if we start to let that acid eat away at us. Or we can use it to etch like a laser into what we want our life to be like. This is a gift, actually. And it's the juice that makes magic magic. I find it really resonant, especially now, because I've been feeling hun or an equivalent of it. I feel like I've been feeling it a lot lately. I imagine a lot of people have. We're recording this after the Supreme Court. Just let it slip that they are trying to overturn Roe v. Wade. I have a lot of this thrumming, angry kind of energy. And yet 
to your point, I don't want it to corrode me. I don't want it to turn into something hateful. I don't want to just be someone who's then embodying that anger and drive to turn into the very toxic, harmful things that are being, I sense, directed at me and people who want autonomy over their bodies. And so I'm really trying to kind of parse through the best way to make sure that that hun is not eating me up inside or turning me into something that I don't want to be. So I wonder how you've learned how to do that yourself. How do you use that energy? I know we don't only want to be like light and only positive vibes here kind of people because that can be really suppressive and destructive in its own right. But I wonder how you've learned to make it a creative force and not a destructive force, or at least not a negatively destructive force, if that makes sense. Yeah, that's the million dollar question. (laughs) And I would say that it's something I still struggle with, but I look towards the Aghori, which is like a mystical Hindu sect in North India for inspiration. If you look on YouTube, there's a lot of sensational journalism, right? Which is, oh my God, you know, there's these group of Hindus who are living in cremation grounds. They take the skull of like dead people and use it as their like food bowl. And sometimes people have seen these agori. They're drinking their own urine, eating their own feces in ecstasy. People are just like, what is going on? Mm -hmm. And the agori, they're saying, well, if you say that you love life, isn't life also decay? Isn't life also pain and suffering? You can't say that you love something and only love part of it. Mm. That's not really love. It's so difficult to live in that space. The Aghori, they do it and they embody it. For me, I'm not there yet. But what I'm trying <laughs> You're not drinking to do, soup out of a skull at lunch. Right. I wish I could. That's so, that's amazing. <laughs> that's badass. So good. Because they're really living it. They're so living it. There is no division between the profane and the sublime in their world. And to me, that also takes a very playful mindset to be like, wait a second, this feels very serious and this feels like life and death. And yes, it is very serious and it is life and death. And yet where are those liminal spaces that I can squeeze into? And then from that quiet place, then begin to have my true will and my magic. Then all of a sudden the situation, the perspective, it changes. Again, this is something I still struggle with. And yet I find that when you see people like the Aghori doing this, living it, literally living it, I'm just like, there is hope. There is hope on how to transmute it. Mm, Fascinating. On that note, we're going to take another quick break and we'll be right back. So as you might imagine, I drink a lot of tea and I have come to fancy myself a bit of a tea connoisseur, not to brag. So when Snowy Owl Tea came on board as a sponsor, I was thrilled because they sent me a truly spectacular assortment of their teas, and I got hooked. My favorites of theirs right now are the Second Breakfast Tea, which is blended with lemon poppy and toasted oats, and honestly, it tastes a little more like dessert than breakfast, and I drink it all day long because it is so delicious. When I'm looking for something a little more caffeinated, I go for their 11th hour tea because it's a blend of black tea, vanilla, and cardamom, and you know I'm a cardamom girl, and let me tell you, it tastes divine. 
I've also been drinking lots of their Armor Up tea to support my immune system in these trying times. And that's their blend of herbal tea, lemon ginger, and turmeric. And it is delicious as well. Are you sensing a theme? Now, in addition to being tasty, snowy owl teas are unique, handcrafted tea blends made with real fruit, fresh ground whole spices, full leaf teas, and blossoms. They are created with your health and comfort in mind using 100% biodegradable tea bags. And the cherry on top of all of that is that Snowy Owl Tea's packaging is such a treat to behold as well, with their beautiful illustrations of woodland creatures and enchanting designs. And I feel obligated to mention yet again that the sisters behind Snowy Owl Tea told me that all of their best teas start as gifts for loved ones or for each other, and that each batch of tea is lovingly sung to, featuring a wide range of divas, from Dolly Parton to Cher. I mean, come on! Does it get any better? No, my friends, it does not. You know you're going to want to discover their seven and counting varieties of tea for yourself, so pop on over to www.snowyowltea.com Dot com, and be sure to enter code POTION at checkout for 25% off your order. That's snowyowltea.com and code POTION gets you 25% off your order. Are you a witch longing for more purpose, connection, and magic in your life, yet you feel unsure where to begin? Jessica Globe is a life coach who guides witches, muggles, and creative folks to break the spell of limiting beliefs, embody their true, wild nature, and uncover what really matters in their life. Witchwave listeners receive a special discounted rate when they visit jessicaglobecoaching.com slash witch. That's jessica, G-L-O-B-E, coaching.com slash witch. While you're there, you can schedule a free consultation call with Jessica to see if coaching is right for you. So go ahead to jessicaglobecoaching.com slash witch to get the discount and schedule a free consultation. Would you like even more Witch Wave? Then come join us on Patreon, where you'll get bi-weekly bonus Witch Wave Plus episodes, ad-free Witch Wave episodes, and detailed show notes for all. Rewards also include magical merch and giveaways, early heads up about my workshops before they sell out, and all backers get access to our exclusive digital coven, where I lead monthly rituals and video chats, and where you can connect to a community of other wonderful witches. So head on over to patreon.com witchwave and sign up. It's a fabulous way to get more magic in your life and to support the show. Thanks so much. Welcome back to The Witch Wave. Today, I'm speaking with Cha Won Koo. So I want to shift gears a little bit and talk about glamour magic. You write in the book, this is just so delightful to me. For any witch setting down their path, 
if you want to understand ritual, there is no better place to start than a playlist of BTS videos. And you really break down K-pop as this huge glamour magic spell. Can you talk a little bit more about why you think that is? I was inspired by a, I think it was some sort of mainstream business article. And they were talking about how the K-pop industry, they purposely were like, well, you know, we're not doing songs in English. So what do we do? What we're going to do is we're going to concentrate on the visuals. We're going to concentrate on the theatrics. So in the book, I quote Arto, mm -hmm. who is an amazing scholar about theater. And throughout history, people have realized the power of theater, of performance. K-pop is three minutes, four minutes of the stage, the costumes, the choreography. The Koreans in East Asia are kind of notorious for our Han. There's this thing where in East Asia, it's sort of like Koreans are the Italians of East Asia, considered <laughs> extremely emotive. Like, oh, you know, they got a temper, they're passionate, the food, it's very spicy. So it's this idea of you're letting all that passion come out in this ritual, in this contained space of a theater, of a stage. Mm -hmm. That's the magic circle, the stage. Yes. And then once you go on the stage and you do this, BTS has become the most successful band since the Beatles. And they're doing it not in English, but in Korean. I've traveled throughout Asia, traveled throughout the world. And there are people in the world who know better Korean and know more about K-pop than me in Russia, in Indonesia, in Mexico, all around the world. And I'm like, how did that happen when in my lifetime, you know, when I was born, my mom had to get baby formula from the black market because Korea was a military dictatorship. Mm. It was a developing economy. Even in 1997 with the IMF crisis, Korea was just like, oh my God, like Korean citizens, private citizens were donating their gold jewelry to the government to melt, to pay back debt. And everybody was like, oh, it's done. I mean, nice little run from the Korean war till 1997, but it's over. And then the Korean government was just like, you know what? What are we going to do? We're going to do soft culture. This is what we're going to export. And we're going to do it in the most savvy way possible. So without using magic vocabulary, the Korean government was just like, we're going to help the Korean industry, K-pop industry, put a spell on the world. Tell us what you need from us. We're going to hack the algorithm of YouTube. We're going to make high-speed internet available to 97% of the population, mm -hmm. pump money and all sorts of promotion to help you guys bewitch the world. And by doing that, all these other industries, they started to rise up along with K-pop. And now it's this virtuous cycle of non-English speaking people basically dictating youth culture today. BTS, Blackpink, Twice, all these K-pop bands, Korean dramas, Korean movies, Squid Games, Korean cosmetics. K-beauty. K-beauty. They dominate mainstream culture, not just in Asia, but throughout the entire world. Mm -hmm. And they did it in about 25, 30 years. If that's not magic, I don't know what else is. <laughs> Beautifully said. So I want to talk about you and your personal journey. You started this YouTube channel, Witches and Wine. And one of the things I first noticed was your amazing makeup that you wear. You also have all kinds of fascinating conversations with occultists, witches, magicians of various stripes and backgrounds. 
But I also know that this has been a journey and an evolution for you in terms of what you started the channel as and what it's turned into. This could take six hours to delve into your whole biography, but I'd really love for you to riff on your own evolution with magic, certainly in the context of the work that you put out in the world. I know travel has been a big part of that too. So whatever is coming to mind, I trust that the right things will come out for us in the time we have given. Uh, So this is going to sound like a joke, but I sort of seriously, but also jokingly say that my magic journey started because of some fuckboys, you know? So (laughs) I was in Korea. Within two weeks of being in Korea, I was invited to see a Korean mudang, indigenous Korean shaman. And you have to understand that I was an atheist all my life, ever since I was five years old. So I go to this thing and it's almost as if I had to step onto the motherland to like breathe in the spores of the dirt and everything to finally have my Korean ancestors be like, wait a second, I know you've been an atheist. You're not crazy about that Catholic stuff that your family is into, but hear us out, go see this mudang, see what happens. And then, you know, we'll throw life at you. We'll throw these fuckboys at you. And then because (laughs) of pain, pain of romantic disappointment. And when we're dealing with heartbreak, sometimes that can be the most constructive time possible because you're like, I'm in so much pain. I'm willing to do everything and anything to make the pain go away. I'm going to be open-minded in ways that I wouldn't be so open-minded if life was just peaceful. I first started out thinking, okay, I'm going to do some chakra meditations because I see these new age girls doing chakra meditations. They seem pretty happy. I tried it, intrigued by it. And I talk about it more in my book about exactly what sort of chakra meditations I did. And then just bit by bit, I was just like, wait a second, if this works, then maybe that will work and that will work. And at the same time, my friend and I decided to start a mukbang, which is a YouTube channel where we were just eating. Hmm. And so it was like, la la fun. And yet I was doing not a lot of eating and I was just talking about magic and talking about my journey. Like in the beginning, if you look at the very first videos in my YouTube channel, it's just me talking about, wait a second, this is so cool. Which stuff, you know, as an atheist, this was like a very, very cool, edgy thing for me to do. And I think at that point, it was a little bit more like, this is a shiny new thing that I've discovered. And then gradually it moved into different topics And then finally, I talked to a cultist. I was just like, you know what? Yeah, I would love to read lots of books and stuff, but I also need audio. I need the visuals. And I just want to ask questions to people. And I'm not afraid of asking the quote unquote dumb questions. So I was like, let me ask the people who wrote the books that I'm reading. Let me ask them the questions that I think we're all dying to know. Mm. And people like Jason Miller, I think he was one of the first to come on my channel so kind. I had like no social media following, no YouTube subscribers, nothing like that. Four or five years ago, YouTube was not a big thing like Mm -hmm, it is today. mm -hmm. And he was just like, sure, I'll just go on. And then from then on, it just grew and grew. And I never imagined that as an atheist skeptic, just like living my life in Korea, that I would end up here with this book and talking to you. Ah. That was very succinct. I'm impressed that you were able to answer my long question about your full life. So thank you for that. I want to dive in a little bit deeper about atheism. You bring up a great point at the end of the book about how it kind of doesn't matter if you believe in spirits or gods or goddesses or the god, whatever you want to call them. To you, that's almost beside the point. Can you elaborate on that a little bit? Oh, I love talking about this because I love using this analogy, which 
I've taken inspiration from Phil Hine, who is well known for his work on chaos magic. Now he does amazing work with Tantra. And I did an interview with him and I realized, wait a second. First of all, let's use the movie, The Matrix. Okay. Anything, anytime I can use The Matrix in any sort of analogy, it's great. Oh, I love I'm that with movie. you. I'm with you. That movie has changed so many lives. The whole concept of red pill, blue pill comes from that movie. Of sure. Course. Now, the thing is you go into a movie theater and you know, as soon as you go in that the movie is written by, starring, directed by, produced by, because it's on the screen. And yet for an hour and a half, you're spending your disbelief and you are allowing yourself to be moved. You know that Zion isn't real. You know that Keanu Reeves isn't actually Neo. You know that there's no Agent Smith, allegedly. But the thing is, <laughs> is that are you going to be that person who's like, oh, well, this movie's not real. That's not really Neo. That's Keanu Reeves. You're not going to be that person. Instead, you're going to allow art. And this is why art is so magical. You're going to allow art to change you, to mutate you, to let you evolve. Because at the end of that movie, I can tell you, I saw it in the movie theaters when it came out. I was a different person when I left that movie theater. And I think great art, that's what it does to you. It changes you fundamentally. It's like when you're doing magic, going to the movie theater is like going to the magic circle, right? Mm -hmm. Going into that place and doing the magic. Now, as soon as you leave the movie theater, are you going to go around being like, Neo's real? No, you're going to go along in your life. And yet you have changed. Because you have changed, of course, everything else is going to change. Your decisions are going to change. The way you view the world is going to change. So magic just isn't out there. Magic just isn't some fetishistic ritual that you do. Magic is what happens to you when you completely fundamentally shift into almost like a new reality and you become an embodiment of what it means to be life, to be magic. That's what art does. You don't have to believe or not believe. It's not a binary. It's in certain contexts, you do believe because you want to mutate. You want to be magic. And then you come out of that magic circle. You come out of that movie theater and you live life because life is magical too. Mm. And then you go into that magic circle in and out and in and out. And you're forever in that space of it doesn't matter. The belief, it doesn't matter. Back in the old days, the priests back in the you know Hellenistic Egypt, you could go up to probably any of them and be like, I don't believe in Osiris. And they'd be like, good for you, but did you do the offerings? Did you do the <laughs> rituals? You did? Good. You're golden. That's what it is. The decisions you make, the way that you live your life is also magic. Mm. So near the end of the book, you talk about some visions you have for the kinds of spells and rituals that you think could happen if people embrace. I know we talked about the word technology, but we'll talk about like Web3, the metaverse, AI, all of these relatively new evolutions of technology. So with our last few moments together, can you share some of that vision with our listeners? What is this vision that you hold in terms of how new technology can elevate people's magic? For me, new technology or what we call new technology, we would have been burned at the stake even 100 years ago for it. 25 years ago, it didn't exist. 10 years ago, it was just a glimmer. What we're doing right now is what, as I mentioned earlier, what the mages in Greek magical papyri time would have done. This technology, it's just a continuation, I think, of the magical tradition, which is to take the imagination and then make it as realistic as possible to change who you are so that you evolve and mutate. It's easier to evolve and mutate when something feels emotionally resonant. And that often means that you're seeing something like a moving picture. A cinematic thing. You're looking at a beautiful piece of art. Something is happening that helps you envision a different world. 
to me, the metaverse is a very exciting place. I just did a podcast called When, which is about Web3 and about the intersection of Web3 and magic. And talking about it is so exciting because it's like you can put on virtual reality and maybe not right now because the technology is still evolving, but in 10, 15, 20 years, it's going to look realistic. You're going to go into a world where you can do rituals as Hecate or as a five-headed fire spitting version of yourself. You can do ritualistic things that you can't do with the laws of physics or you know, in ethical ways now. What happens when we do magic that our brain literally can't tell the difference between away from keyboard, like quote unquote, in real life versus in virtual or augmented reality? When that line is blurred to me, it's like, are you dreaming? Are you awake? That's mm. the ultimate magical space. So I'm looking forward to it big time. Awesome. Well, I for one cannot wait to see what you do with it. For the time being, we have your wonderful YouTube channel. We have your incredible book that's here. Is there anything else that you want to make sure people know about you and your work and where people can find it all? My main home is on TikTok. You can just look up my name and I talk a lot about demons. And yes, I do a lot of trolling about demons and stuff. It's TikTok, you know, I have fun. <laughs> I have fun about demons and angels. I talk a lot of smack about angels. So if you guys are into that sort of stuff, you know, <laughs> that's my TikTok. And I'm going to be doing a lecture about K-pop and what witches and occultists can learn about K-pop in September. And I think somewhere in my whatever, TikTok, whatever, there's a link somewhere. So just find me on TikTok. I would love to hear people's comments and feedback about my book. It just makes me so happy when people tell me what they feel about my book. Well, you already know how I feel about it. I think it is stunning. I'm so happy it's here. And I'm so happy that I got to spend time with you today. Thank you so much for being on The Witch Wave. Thank you so much, Pam. That's it for the show. Thank you again to Chawan Ku for sharing her spellbinding magic with me. Do you have questions, feedback, need some witchly advice, or just want to share something magical that happened to you recently? Drop us an email at witchwavepodcast at gmail.com. We'd love to hear from you, and you just might make it on The Witch Wire. The Witch Wave is a phantasmophile production written and produced by me, Pam Grossman. This episode was recorded and edited by Josh Wilcox, and myself. Our theme music is the song Hand and I by Lycanthia. Special thanks go to Matt Freeman, Laura Antal, and Cece Pascal. You can check out information about this and other episodes on our website and now by Witchwave merch at witchwavepodcast.com. Please subscribe to us on your favorite podcast app and give us lots of sparkly stars. It really, truly makes a difference and helps other people find the show. You can follow us on Twitter, Instagram, and Facebook at WitchWavePod. And you can check out my witch emoji for iPhone by going to witchemoji.com or downloading it in the App Store. Please consider ordering my book, Witchcraft, or picking up my book, Waking the Witch, which is available everywhere now. And if you want more Witch Wave or you would just like to support the show, please join us over on Patreon. That's patreon.com slash witchwave. Thank you so much for listening. Witches are the future. I'll catch you next time on The Witch Wave.